Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello and welcome to Law and the Family, brought to you by the Family Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm Aaron Weems, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Hoover. Today, we welcome Janine Dunlop-Kaya, the Director for the Pursuing Justice for Grandparents Raising Grandchildren in Pennsylvania Project through the Senior Law Center, which is based in Philadelphia. Janine, welcome to the podcast, and please take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience. Hello. Thank you so much, Anthony and Aaron, for giving me the space and opportunity to speak with you. I'm really excited. Again, like you stated, I am currently the Director for Pursuing Justice for Grandparents Raising Grandchildren Project at Senior Law Center. Senior Law Center is the largest and oldest provider of legal aid services to Pennsylvanians, specifically age 60 and older. We've been around 42 years now, and our physical footprint is in southeastern PA with offices in Philadelphia and the four surrounding counties. Um, however, my project and a few other projects are statewide and really excited. The GRG project specifically is largely funded through a federal grant. And again, we offer legal services uh, to every county in Pennsylvania, whether it's brief services and legal advice and counsel through our Pennsylvania Senior Law Helpline or through full representation, which we offer in Philadelphia County. So excited to talk more about what we do and how if others are hopefully led after hearing this, that they can jump in and help us. Well, thank you very much for being here because we do think it's a really important topic to talk about. Um, I think a lot of attorneys are familiar with or have had third-party custody cases, and your particular project really deals with what I think a lot of people see when they have these cases, which are the involvement of grandparents. I think everyone's familiar that the custody statute has evolved over time relative to standing. We're dealing with Section 5324, which deals with the physical and legal custody. And I would love to get your perspective about how that broadening of the statute, the standing statute, has impacted the work that you do and, and what you've seen in within your project about how grandparents' rights are being addressed. Sure. Um, thanks so much. And I just really love the opportunity, especially to speak to folks who don't regularly deal with third-party uh, custody, even though hopefully, again, they will feel more inclined after hearing this presentation. But one thing um, I do get between colleagues or people sending, uh, referring folks to us, in general, they say, oh, they have that new statute. Grandparents can get custody now. Isn't that great? And they think it's this kind of blanket door-opening moment. And when you really dissect it, it really isn't. It isn't as, or it doesn't broaden the rights of grandparents as much as one would think. And often when I break it down on the limitations, as you state, you know, my colleagues go, oh, you know, because it wasn't, it's not that simple. In general, regarding, you know, 5324 and addressing standing, one of the pieces, which isn't new, but, you know, they reference those who are one piece is in local parentis. Now, we, we all know that term, but we also know that in local parentis isn't defined, right? So whether or not you're in local parentis is like in the eye of the beholder, right? Whoever you're talking to at the moment, the judge. So that also, that causes already another layer of potential contention and litigation. So for example, 
when you have, just for the sake of speaking, I'll say regular custody. When I say regular, I mean there's one or two parents on, in, on the, the parties. The parties are parents, adoptive, whatever. Well, you don't have that standing issue because the statute overall says if you're a parent, you know, you have standing automatically. If you're a third party, you have to go through that initial hoop. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people or legal aid organizations stray away from third party cases, because if you have to litigate standing first, you're already using a lot of resources just to get to see if you are granted the bite of the apple. So if you win your standing situation, your grand prizes, now you get to carry forth with your underlying substantive issues. So again, it just adds a complexity to these issues, especially if there is a parent involved. Since there is no definition for in local parentis, again, it's just it's another little gray area where you're left trying to argue, you know, time spent and duties discharged or your willingness to do the duty. And no, it just gets a little more murky. So that's one issue um, regarding standing. And just some per- some perspective, I mean, just w- with respect to that, I mean, I think if you wouldn't mind just kind of a statistic that you shared before we started the show on the number of children being cared for by grandparents. And so just answering this question with respect to the statistic, you know, we're not talking about a couple thousand kids here that are being cared by grandparents. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, statewide number in 100,000, possibly even more of kids that are that are being raised by grandparents. And, and really having that be, you know, from the children's perspective, a big component of their life. So knowing that arguably those grandparents that are providing this care possibly legally can no longer continue to provide it or have a relationship. I mean, just your, your project, the issues from at least how you see it and, and the project that you see, you know, with respect to the legislation and how it could be changed or if there are limitations. Because honestly, I mean, I think a lot of practitioners think the legislation is broad in a sense and thinks that we're a great state for grandparents. We practitioners think that. Right. And I will say I was able to, while you were talking, just grab those numbers. And as of the 2020-2024 PA Department of Aging state plan on aging in Pennsylvania statewide, more than 235,000 grandparents, you know, live with their grandchildren. And of that number, that's multi-generational household. And of that number, 84,000 were living with their grandparents without their parents in the home. So like the 84,000 where the grandparent is the primary caretaker, that larger number means it's a multi-generational household where the grandparent is helping give care along with the parent who may or may be in or out. So just that number um, in of itself is definitely, forget someone said, it's not just a couple thousand kids, right? It's a, it's a significant number. And then back to what this statute, the 2018 amendment, what it gave were these very specific guidelines or these very specific situations you have to be in for the statute to apply to you. So one of them, as I was just speaking, um, besides being in local parentis, and there's a couple of bullets under that, you know, um, because there's no statutory definition of that, as I stated, but going back to it, one, another piece is you have to have consent of the parent. And that's been litigation even as of this year in summer of 2021, where there are um, things on appeal right now, where a person had, they had all of the in local parentis, I mean, had the child, had him for a couple of years, did all the things. And then it turns out they did not have standing because it turned, it's out of Delaware County, it turned on this piece that, well, you didn't have the express 
permission of the parent to have this child, even though the parent knew that. The parent knew where the child was. The parent knew you were taking care of them. But since they didn't expressly give you consent, that child was removed from that person's care. So it's these little teeny tiny, you know, fine tuning things that, you know, you learn in practice or seeing how things play out. And that was very surprising to me, a lot of my colleagues, that despite someone taking care of the child and the parent was aware, it's not like it was a secret, it wasn't a withholding bit, but the court turned on the parent being aware of the child being your care versus giving you express consent, right? So those little loopholes, there I say, if they call them loopholes, I don't want to minimize, I mean, that's what the court's holding, but it doesn't make it easy. And again, it just, that what we thought, oh, I did all the things. I have the child. I'm doing all the things. I've been doing it for a couple of years. And something as tiny as that will change everything on a dime, right? So there's just an example of how they're very specific with these, whereas, for example, if this were a regular custody matter, that would never play, right? If you've, if you've had your child, your own child for a few years and the other parent files for custody, a court isn't going to say, well, the other parent didn't give you consent, right? It doesn't apply, right? But it's just these third-party cases where you have these little extra sprinkles of, of potential complication. Well, well right. And I, I think and I think just the, un, the underlying issue here that, that you're talking about is, you know, with respect to your project and, and representing grandparents, it's this notion that grandparents spend resources, spend time, spend energy, their retired years caring for their grandkids, and then them wanting and believing that it's in the best interest of the children that they continue to do so, or at least maintain a relationship to a certain extent. But if we have two parents come in and say, really, again, without any kind of exception for the grandparents to stay in, the parents can come in and say, no, we we jointly agree as parents to exclude you grandparents from having any contact with the kids. Absolutely. And that's been litigated out the wazoo on appeal exactly as well. Um, thinking of a case that was just settled in Superior Court or, you know, finalized in Superior Court. Or, yeah, having the ability for parents to decide whether or not they want that extended family in the child's life is, again, statutorily, that's their right. But I just always give the caveat, unfortunately, some parents or families weaponize that. And they kind of, they use that as a tool to cause a lot of chaos and frankly, not work in the child's best interest just because they can, you know, if the child is enjoying a wonderful relationship with the grandparent, but the grandparent and the parent, for whatever reason, have a falling out. Now you can rip a grandparent from that child's life just because you decide, you know what, I'm not going to speak to my dad anymore. And that really has nothing to do with the child. And the child certainly isn't better off now with the sudden loss of that relationship that they enjoyed. But that is how the cookie crumbles, right? Parents have the right to do that. And unfortunately, I've seen it way too often that it's unfortunate. Would you say it's, it's, it's kind of a fair assessment of the, of the standing statute that for grandparents to establish standing, it's typically going to be a situation where there's already been some degree of judicial involvement, either a dependency action or that there's been a, you know, there are already ongoing issues. It's less about a, a grandparent injecting themselves into a custody case, more so that they're a, a necessary party due to underlying issues in the case. You know, if, as I look at the statute, it talks about the child having been determined to be dependent, that there's a risk of parent, parental abuse, neglect, drug or alcohol abuse, or that the child has already been out of the parent's biological parent's home or adopted parent's home for a period of 12 months. You know, these are not necessarily cases in which it is a, a typical, we'll call it a typical custody action, and the grandparents wanted to carve out their niche 
there are probably some some more substantive issues that are going on. Is that a fair assessment of the cases that you see? Well, those aren't the assessment for my cases. The majority of my cases are the vast majority of them are due to parental absenteeism. So the parents are not in the picture. So if you're talking about in, if a grandparent injecting themselves into a case that's already ongoing between two parents, is that what you mean? Like, Well, I guess what I'm saying is to your, to your point, like w- if you have absenteeism, you probably have a child that might have already gone through and been deemed dependent through either a, a dependency action or something else. You've got cases in which there are some serious underlying issues in which the parent, the grandparents are either being relied upon or looked to independent of the parents. And I'm just contrasting that with, with a lot of the things that I think we encounter, which is a, you know, the grandparents are really just trying to preserve their role because the parents are divorcing. Yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, exactly. So for our cases, our priority are grandparents who are seeking primary custody. What you're talking about, if grandparents seeking partial custody is what you mean. And that's actually not a priority of ours because we, we want to keep children out of foster care t- system and things like that. If a child is intact with their parents and just parents and grandparents are having an issue, that's not something we undertake as a, you know, that's just not our bailiwick. What we're talking about are children with, if it weren't for these grandparents, they would end up in the system because the parents are absent. And I just want to correct, it's not that the child has to be out of the parent's home for 12 months, they just have to have lived with the grandparent. So meaning even if a child and their parent lived in the grandparent's home for a year, the grandparents still could have be standing, or they could argue standing. I've done those cases in Chester County, even if the parent is in the home. Does that make sense? So I just wanted to just correct that. It's not that they have to be out of the parent's home. They just have to be living with the grandparent. And whether or not their own parents live with them, multi-generational household, is irrelevant for that. Um, but the main caveat about that piece, if I just hold on there for a second, that's another quick war story. If the child, in this case, kind of ours, where it's great-grandmom, Again, often our clients are great-grandparents versus grandparents. Our great-grandmother seeking a partial custody of her great-granddaughter and her granddaughter, the child's mother, and the great-granddaughter lived with our client since the great-grandchild was born. The great-grandmother was the GRG to her granddaughter, so she raised her granddaughter. <laughs> and then the granddaughter, young woman, had a child and still lived with her, with her grandmother. So when she had the child, came home from the hospital. Now all three of them live together. And the child's in like pre-K. So now maybe the child's like four, five, that kind of thing. So the child's been there four or five years old. Grandmother, very much involved with her care because the mother is in college. So just very involved, back and forth to daycare, whatever. Well, as I actually happen to mention, great segue, great-grandmom and mom had a falling out over the mother's boyfriend, literally. Just so nothing to do with child care, nothing to do with relationships. I don't like your boyfriend. I like him. Fine. I'm moving out and I'm just moving to another part of Philadelphia. Fine. Grandmom still have the same relationship with the granddaughter because for work and school reasons, grandmom would have the child like three nights a week over the weekend, all that kind of stuff. So that was going on. And then eight months after that, the daughter decided to move in with the boyfriend and move to Virginia. Now she calls us. Because now their relationship was disintegrated. She didn't know she was moving. She hasn't seen her great-granddaughter, blah, blah, blah. So I'll cut to the end. My client, because she didn't file within the statutory requirement of six months after the child left her house, she ended up with nothing. 
the judge has said this, what the statute, you know, plainly states. I tried to argue for an equity uh, argument, um, which is, you know, the reason that was put in place, if you look at legislative history, it was to permit basically grandparents from kind of reaching in, overreaching after someone had moved from your home. It's been two years. It's been some long time. And now you're dragging parents back to court to talk about some rights. And it's like, you're kind of like, you know, be about your business sooner. Right. And I get that. But I love the case here. My client found out she moved to Florida, uh, Florida, to Virginia, when she called the preschool to say, hey, I'm going to pick my granddaughter up early today for whatever reason. And the preschool woman said, oh, she didn't come here today. She's not enrolled anymore. Like it happened in a day. She didn't even know. Now, up until that point, she had her great granddaughter in her home like three, four nights a week. Why would she file an action in court? So I'm explaining to the judge, you're like making someone have to make a problem when there wasn't a problem. She didn't have a problem. Even though they moved out, she still had the girl in her home. But now that she's moved away, now she wants to address it. And she was just SOL, as they say. And now we, I had to change our, that was last year. So to change our whole approach and how we counsel. And it's unfortunate that I have to say, the way the statute is set up, you're making families create problems and have to file actions against their daughters or stepdaughters or whatever, even when they don't have an issue, just to preserve this right, should there be an issue later. Now, how does that go over at the family picnic, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, and that, but- and that's, yeah, and that's, and that's the challenge. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine it's also the challenge of just getting every single possibility into the statute and legislating these problems away, so to speak. And that's right. And I'm sure something that you, at times, even in your advocacy for changing this, you know, and broadening grandparents' rights in general, you know, is knowing that those constitutional challenges that have arisen with respect to some of those items where arguably those parents do have those rights. I mean, that the protected right, you know, constitutional right to parent your children and, you know, decide where they go to school, who they see, things like that. I, I acknowledge that that's a challenge for legislators and um, even for you, you know, when you're in the appellate courts and dealing with those issues, you're facing those constitutional arguments all the time. So if you could, I mean, with respect to just, you know, not necessarily the direct representation, but just some of the advocacy of what you've seen maybe even in other states, as far as states that have broader grandparent rights in Pennsylvania. You don't even need to be specific, but just things that you, from an advocacy standpoint, believe could be used to broaden a statute here in PA. One piece that I, just to piggyback on the scenario I just gave, because it's just still so nonsensical to me, and I agree with what you said, it's hard to have a statute assess all um, possibilities, right? But in this case, you know, I would love to see advocacy surrounding that piece of uh, like that must be filed within six months of the removal of the child from the home. I would love to see it something where in this case, the fact that the child still was sleeping at my client's home (laughs) three nights a week, even though her residence had changed, either that should be allowed to be included so that again, you're not basically forcing the hand of people to file actions against parents just to preserve this right in the future, you know, that kind of bit. Or it should be something where, again, in this case, if the the child, well, I guess it's kind of, I'm saying two sides of the same coin. But basically, if the child physical residence, like primary residence did change, but the grandparent is still enjoying, you know, that type of relationship, whether it's overnight or not, like the fact that if you're still enjoying a relationship with the consent of the parent, then you shouldn't have 
to file an action in court within six months to preserve that right. Frankly, anyone who's smart enough, they could play that game too, you know, from the parent's side. They could say, I have plans. I don't want to deal with my mother anymore. I know what I'll do. We've moved out or whatever. We're going to play around for six months and then I'll cut her out because I know I'm running down the clock. I mean, if I were an attorney advising a client, you don't think I would say that? Why? Of course I would tell them that because I know better. You run down the clock and then they can't do anything. Because the statute's really a bright line rule. And I'll just kind of inject this thought, which is you see in the adoption statute when it comes to terminating parental rights, there's a consideration of the bond with the child between the parent and the child. Right. Sounds like what you're saying Something like that may make sense because you can at least draw in the facts on the ground relative to the child and that particular grandparent to determine whether or not that bond exists to where it would make sense to allow that person to have standing, which I'm sure would create openings in other ways. But I hear hear you from the frustration that there is a little bit of a bright line rule, which doesn't necessarily reflect what is in the child's best interest. Yes. Thank you. And you encapsulated that so well. I'm going to steal your bit about that bond and even think about that. Exactly. I'm talking around it, but you said it so succinctly. The bond between the grandparent and the child, mind you, which in the custody factors, it's good enough in that statute where they state how important it is for a child to have their connection with extended family members. It's important over there. But if a grandparent wants to assert it proactively, then it doesn't mean anything. And that just seems to be, it's just so incongruous. And even what we're trying to say is our overall policy on how do we feel about the importance of extended family members in the life of a child and how enriching that is. So that's a great, I, I, thanks for that talking point. It's, I'm going to use <laughs> So, So, yeah, and before we forget, and maybe even just kind of some closing points here, if you wouldn't mind, and I think, you know, attorneys out there, you know, maybe even young attorneys or attorneys at firms, you know, who get credit for pro bono hours and things like that. Yeah. Through your organization, what can, you know, attorneys who maybe listen to this podcast do, you know, if they are, you know, maybe interested in getting in the courtroom and helping grandparents, what opportunities are out there for individuals like that? Thank you so much, Anthony. I'm so glad you brought that up. I am very proud of the work that we do with Senior Law Center regarding GRG. Again, that's Grandparent Raising Grandchildren. I don't know if I said that. I think I just started using the acronym. So GRG uh, cases, we have multiple opportunities to volunteer with us, not to guilt trip anyone, but we do have the ethical rule. That we are supposed to, we are supposed to offer our services to indigent, whether it's people or organizations, we're supposed to offer our talent to those who uh, otherwise cannot afford private representation for their matters. So in appealing to our ethical rule to all of uh, the listeners about, you know, using your, your talents for good, with Senior Law Center, we are the only legal aid organization in the state that specifically targets GRG cases, not to say that a couple of legal aid organizations do handle them, but that's not their mainstay. That is the name of our project. So it's what we do. So we would just be a great resource to connect with because we have, you know, the largest roster of families in need. Now, the two ways just very quickly, and I would hope anyone would reach out to us if they are interested in learning more about how to volunteer with us. One way, as you mentioned, Anthony, as far as going to court, we do provide full representation. And that means, you know, courtroom litigation representation, and we provide that in Philadelphia County for custody matters at this time. So if anyone practices in Philadelphia and they are interested in going to court for these matters, please, we have that available to you, whether or not you have prior custody experience or not. We have great mentors and tools, toolkits, 
everything. We actually just did a CLE in the fall about it, nuts and bolts of how to do a GRG case. So you're, it's not as if you are without support. So we will help you, guide you, whatever you need, and we are happy to do that. And we do have attorneys take full rep cases who've never practiced custody before to great success. So we have done it, and that's fine. On the other side, I understand people have time constraints. We do have the Pennsylvania Senior Law Helpline. That is our statewide senior legal services helpline where we offer services from advice and counseling through brief services. And just an example of brief service would be, for example, in PA, we are allowed to ghostwrite. So, for example, if someone wants to follow a petition to modify custody, you could ghostwrite them and you send them documents for them to sign and file and things like that. Or it could just be talking them through it, telling them how to present their case, whatever it is. So that would be what we offer through our helpline. You do it all from the comfort of your chair and your phone. And these are often one and done, but if it's advice and counseling or referrals, if it's a brief service, Maybe it's a two and done, maybe a three and done if you're really thorough with them. But it's still a very short amount of time for you to devote. But it makes the world of difference without these opportunities. For example, the helpline, because we only do full rep in Philadelphia County, 99% of the time, it's what we offer them or nothing. See what I'm saying? They right. don't have another option. And that's interesting, just that, that opportunity for that limited scope type assistance um, to help individuals out in that limited way. I'm sure attorneys out there will make sure all I's are dotted, T's crossed, you know, in that limited scope type assistance. Anyway, so that that's very helpful. And just if you could, I mean, just kind of like a website or just someone, some what, what should they website Google? What, what should we do there? Sure. So that's www.seniorlawcenter.org, seniorlawcenter.org. And when you post this, do you have, like, is there a way you can add my contact information? I don't know. Okay, great. So that'll be in the, in the notes or whatever when it's being posted to contact. Again, even if you have a question, you don't have to feel like if you reach out, you're going to get net hooked in. You can just to get in more information, whether it's time constraints or your expertise. We're happy to speak to any of any potential volunteers. We, um, you know, like many legal aid organizations. We really do um, depend on our pro bono volunteers. It just helps us offer our services to an even larger group of people. Excellent. Well, Janine, thank you so much for joining us here today. That was so uh, thick. Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, everyone out there listening, thank you so much. Keep on listening and come back next time for the Law and the Family podcast from the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thank you. Thank you. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.